everyone. You're listening to Ed Young Radio, Ed Pastors Fellowship Church, and we want to thank you for listening with us. These next few minutes together can change your life, and you can always hear more by visiting edyoung.com. Enjoy the message. One of the most frequently asked questions people post to me goes something like this. They say, Ed, how do you go about preparing a message? I mean, what's a sermon all about as far as the preparation and the delivery? And I want to stop and share with you in just a few sentences what goes on. I usually begin with a time of prayer. And after I pray, I sit down at a desk and begin to write out what I feel God wants me to communicate to the church. Following that, I read a number of books and articles and I run the direction by several trusted confidants, and if I get an okay on all of those things, I then write the entire message out Thursday morning, word for word, on something I call a message map. This is today's message, word for word. Then I come in on Saturday, memorize it, then deliver it Saturday evening. After the Saturday evening service, we have a brief meeting, usually, to critique the service and to try to help the message or the drama in any way possible. Then on Sunday at 10 a.m., I stand up again and deliver this word from God. It's kind of like writing and editing and reciting a term paper every single weekend. It's an exciting process, a tough process for me, because it takes a minimum of 25 hours a week just to do this stuff. That's what it takes to deliver a message. Earlier this week, though, after my prayer time, I felt led to do something different. I've never really done this before. After prayer, as I began to write, I felt God leading me not to read any research. Although my file folder is bulging with information about the seventh commandment, And it was so tempting to read it, I felt God saying, Ed, no. Ed, just share from your heart. Just share from cliff notes of conversations, letters, and trends that you've observed over the years and years of your ministry as you've dealt with so many people who confronted this commandment. So, ladies and gentlemen, that's what I'm going to do in this session. Now, I know in a crowd this size, we have a lot of people in a lot of different stages of life. A hunk of us here are married. And if you're married, listen up. About 3,000 of us here are single adults. And singles, research reveals that most of you will get married one day. Isn't that great? I mean, if you don't hear anything I said today, that's something to hold on to, isn't it? Listen up. Listen up. I also know some of you here have been dealt a devastating blow by adultery. And I realize the pain and the suffering and maybe some guilt is immense as you listen to me and listen to God's word as we go through this. Hang in there. We've been praying for you. We're on your side. We want the best for you. I also know that others here, right now, are involved in an adulterous relationship. 
You think that no one knows. You think as you move around in a very clandestine fashion that people are clueless. Hey, your friends and maybe even your spouse doesn't know, but God knows. You listen up. Because we've been praying like crazy that God would do something supernatural in your life. Others here are considering adultery. You're watching that bait float by, and you are swimming up to it, and you're thinking about it and considering it. Listen up. These direct words, I believe, can transform your thought processes and your behaviors. Others here have never violated the seventh commandment. And if that's you, I applaud you. I really, really do. But you can never say you're above this. You can never say you're invincible. Because the Bible says in the book of James, chapter 1, when you're tempted, not if, when you're tempted, because the bait is going to float by. So having said that, remember today's goal is to confront, challenge, and encourage every person here to have a strong and biblical read on the seventh commandment. The path to promiscuity is paved by a lot of prominent people. It's amazing what happens in this process. It starts with a distraction. You're distracted. Maybe you've gone through a very exhausting time at work. Maybe you're in a financial tight. Maybe you're having marriage trouble. Maybe sex has become monotonous. A distraction. A distraction could be on the other end of the spectrum. You could be feeling invincible. You could be feeling like you're on a roll. You could be feeling like nothing can touch me. A distraction. It always starts with a distraction. And from there, it usually segues into an attraction. And an attraction occurs in a nanosecond. You notice someone, a member of the opposite sex, at the health club, around the neighborhood, at the office, and you're attracted to them. It's not a sin to be attracted to a member of the opposite sex. Billy Graham said it best when he said, it's not the first look that gets you in trouble, it's the second and the third and the fourth that messes you up. We all are going to be attracted by certain members of the opposite sex. And it should stop at attraction. It should end right there. But in many cases, it doesn't. James chapter 1, 14 through 16. But each one is tempted when he's carried away and enticed by his own lust. See that word enticed? It's a fishing term, which means to lure by bait. Then, when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Do not be deceived. And this death is an emotional death and a relational death. 
It starts with a distraction, it moves to an attraction, and if an attraction is left unchecked, we move into an infatuation. And that's where the problem really begins. That where it, that's where it festers, because not only are you attracted to this person, but you begin to play mind games with yourself. You begin to intentionally spend more and more time with this person. A long, lingering business lunch. After hours, work projects. You want to spend large blocks of time with him or with her, and you say things to yourself like, I wonder what it would be like to touch that person. I wonder what it would be like to hold that person. I wonder what it would be like to make love to that person. A woman might say, he understands me. He knows how to talk to me. He supports me. He thinks I'm the greatest thing walking on the planet. A man might say, oh, she's so sexy. She's so sweet and kind. She knows what makes me tick. And delusions of romantic dinners and sex-filled and sun-drenched Caribbean vacations begin to dance in your head. You're infatuated with the person. And then one day, one day you do physically what you've done mentally a long time ago. You commit adultery. You break the seventh commandment and you trade in a brief moment of ecstasy for a lifetime of pain. At this point, people have some different reactions. Some I've talked to, some of the guilt-ridden parties hit their face and their knees and their bodies before God and they say, Oh, Lord, I have sinned against you and my spouse and my family. I'm wrong. I want to do whatever it takes to make my marriage work. And they come clean, and they go through Christian counseling. And I've seen people who violated the Seventh Commandment, who've come clean and confessed and really done some tough work. I've seen them emerge on the other side to have strong, biblically functioning marriages. I've seen it. And some of you in this church, I will not call your names out, know what I'm talking about. You could raise your hand and say, hey, Ed, I'm with you, man. I've been there. I've done that, and God has changed my life. Some people have that reaction. And it's my prayer that many who have violated the seventh commandment would go through those processes and go through those steps today as a result of our time of worship. Others, though, don't go there. Others who are guilt-ridden, don't deal with it. Others begin to get involved in a deep and diabolical and destructive pattern. Jesus talked about Satan's strategy in John chapter 8, verse 44, when he said, There is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar, and the father of lies. 
When you commit adultery, the first one on the scene is the father of lies, the evil one. And he begins to whisper lies to you. He's the father of lies. He speaks lionese. Lie after lie after lie after lie. Listen to the popular lies that I've heard from people involved in affairs. Maybe they sound familiar. The first one is the wedding lie. People walk up to me and talk to me now and then about this, and they'll tell me something like, well, Ed, when I got involved with this person, and when I married this person, I didn't really love this person. Now, Ed, I'm involved with a third party. Whoa, it's different. I didn't really mean the words I said before God and my friends and a minister. I didn't really mean it. Satan has the ability to lie to such a degree because he's a father of lies. He speaks Lionese. He takes us back, way back, before the wedding, and somehow people rationalize, well, I didn't really love him. I didn't really love her when I walked down the wedding runner. Amazing stuff, diabolical stuff, destructive stuff, because adultery is one of the most devastating sins and blows to hit the family. And in most divorce cases, there is almost always a third party involved. Almost always. The wedding lie. There's another lie. The feelings lie. The feelings lie. I'll never forget the conversation I had several years ago with a man who was bailing out on his wife and his family, a man who was involved with a third party. And this man looked at me and said these words. He said, Ed, I understand what I'm doing is wrong, but I'm miserable in my marriage now I'm happy, and God wants me to be happy. Surely, Ed, God wants me to be happy. I looked at him, and I got choked up. And I said, happy? God wants you to be obedient. He wants you to do the right thing. He doesn't want you to crater on this covenant, on this commitment. If you do what's right and obey him and hang in there, then your feelings will follow. And I said it's easier to act your way into a feeling than to feel your way into an action. Another lie is the denial lie. People, look at others and just lie. They live on the basis of denying things. Me? An affair? What? No, I'm not having sex with someone else. No way. Not me. No, not little old pure me. No way. No way. A young lady wrote me this letter a couple of days ago. Dear Ed, our marriage was not perfect, but it was ours, and it was all we knew. He was my best friend, and I trusted him totally. There were signs. I didn't ignore them, but 
I became suspicious and very observant. I finally got up the nerve to ask him point blank, face to face, are you and your co-worker having an affair? And my husband and best friend of many years looked me right in the eyes and lied. There were times when I knew he was talking with her on the phone. Many times I would put my hand on the phone receiver by my bed and consider picking it up and listening, then I'd know for certain. No more speculating, but I couldn't do it. Because if it were true, it would hurt too much. And what would I do? Finally, my suspicions were replaced with fact. My thoughts and actions spun out of control. I became obsessed with his lies, the details of the affair and the events that led to it. I kept trying to put all the puzzle pieces together. I was taken over by obsessions. Images of my husband and his lover would flash through my mind day and night. I constantly awoke to dreams of him and her in bed together. It would play over and over and over. I stopped feeling positive about myself and about life. It was all negative, jealous, enraged, diminished, bitter, frightened, lonely, ugly, mistrustful, exposed. His deception blinded me from how I saw myself. I started doubting and questioning everything about myself. I thought it must be me. I must have caused this affair to happen. I must change myself. I felt the fate of our marriage was in my hands. The wedding lie, the feelings lie, the denial lie. Some lie just to buy time to hide finances and to protect themselves when the divorce actually comes down. But there's one more lie I want to hit, the support lie. The support lie. When someone has broken the seventh commandment, and when a guilt-ridden party does not come clean, when they don't confess their sins to God and to their spouse and work through the pain and the alienation and the problems that an affair occurs, when they don't do it God's way, some of them go through the support lie. Satan brings strategic, sinful sympathizers in people's lives, and these sinful sympathizers surround the person who's committing sin, and they identify with the person, they pat the person on the back and say, hey, it's okay, hey, you deserve it, hey, she looks pretty good, hey, he's great, hey, keep on doing it. Don't feel guilty, everything's okay. And people walk around and say, well, my new friends support me. My new friends give me counsel. My new friends say I'm doing the right thing by busting up a marriage, by ruining my children's lives, and getting involved with the third party. My new friends say that. If you are involved in adultery right now, ask yourself this question, who are you getting counsel from? Because the evil one will have you so packed, so filled with these sinful sympathizers that it's tough to look above the fray and to see people who will speak the truth in love. Talk to someone who has a commitment to God and to a marriage and to others. Let them speak truth into your life. Don't 
listen to the sinful sympathizers given to you by Satan himself. They do it to ease their guilt, to remove their responsibility, because it always makes us feel better when we, we can look around and say, oh, oh, a lot of people are doing it. A lot of people are disobeying the Sabbath, so it must be cool. It must be, it must be okay. Lies. Just plain old lies. Is that bait floating by in your life? Is the evil one beginning to lure you from cover? Are you past the distraction into the attraction and maybe into the infatuation stage? Are you infatuated by this person? If you are, I want to communicate to you some suggestions on how to do what is right, to how to go about this in God's way with God's agenda. When you feel the attraction moving into infatuation, the first thing I challenge you to do is to push the clock forward. Push the clock forward. If you trade a brief moment of ecstasy in for a lifetime of pain. And if you're considering doing that, think about the lifetime of pain. Think about the damage. Think about what it will do to your spouse, to your children if you have any, and to God. Several weeks ago, a man who had committed adultery penned these words to me. He said, Ed, I've taken full responsibility for my actions. I was the one that sinned. Instead of looking to Christ and just keeping my focus on him when my marriage was first in trouble, I looked for someone else's approval that I had no right being with. It took me a long time before I would admit to God that I'd sinned. I could justify everything in my mind. I did not think God would even listen to me if I prayed, more or less forgive me. And then, he does some damage assessment for us. You want to know what it would be like, man, to have sex with that cute little girl at work? Hey, lady, do you know what it would be like to have sex with that attractive man? Okay. Look past the sex, past the romantic dinners, past the delusions of sun-drenched and sex-filled Caribbean vacations, and listen to the damage this man writes that he's experiencing right now. He lists seven problems. Number one, he says, my spouse no longer trusts me. And he says, why should she? Number two, I damage my spouse's and my own spirit and soul and both of our relationship with Christ. Number three, my kids don't know yet, but soon may. I will not know for years what I've done to them and may not ever get to know. Number four, my friends and family may soon be gone. Number five, crying in grief and even being physically sick with having to deal with this situation I've created. Number six, soon there could be a divorce and all that goes with that. Number seven, and all that I don't know about that may happen. He concludes his letter by writing, the seeds of lies have been planted and I'm reaping my crop. 
I'm not adding my name because I do not want to cause my kids or my spouse any additional grief. You may share my story, though, if you feel it will help someone else. Push the clock forward. The bay tastes so great for a while, but think about those penetrating hooks. Think about the fight because, hey, I practice catch and release even with alligator gar. Satan does not. He'll put you in the frying pan after he's filleted you and gutted you and he will say, you are not worthy to serve again. You're not worthy to live again. Look what you've done to your family. Look what you've done to your friends. Look what you've done. Look what you've done. Another suggestion after you push the clock forward. Recognize your various times of vulnerability. Recognize your various times of vulnerability. Like I said, it could be after you're kind of on a roll, or, or maybe you're exhausted, or maybe you're going through some marital problems. Jesus, after his baptism, after a spiritual high point, the Bible says, was driven out into the wilderness. After he went without food for 40 days and 40 nights, then the evil one emerged on the scene to tempt him. He knows when you are most vulnerable. He knows when you're the most susceptible. And he's waiting, waiting to just float that bait by. And he's saying, no one will ever know. Just try it. Just taste the bait. It'll be okay. Everybody's doing it. Everybody involves themselves in it. And you mix with this. A steady diet of romance novels, trashy magazines, videos, and gentlemen's clubs. And you've got someone who is right there taking the bait. Another suggestion. Extinguish the flames of unfaithfulness. Extinguish the flames of unfaithfulness in your life. Certain flames might be surrounding you, and we must extinguish the flames. Think about your friends. Read the studies. Many affairs occur when one couple is really connected to another couple. Your best friends, husband and wife, should be friends who have the same commitment to fidelity, to God, to the marriage as you do. If they don't, you are messing around with some fire. And if that's not true for you, back off your friendship, back off your relationship, and ask God to bring in some Christian friends into your existence and into your relational world. Well, Ed, how do I do it? We have a ministry here that supports this church called Home Teams. It's clusters of singles and married adults that meet together at least twice a month around the Dallas-Fort Worth area. That's a wonderful way to meet other people like that. We have connection classes. We have men's ministry groups. We have women's ministry groups. The list is limitless. That is part of a local church to build a social and relational base for singles and couples so we can all be operating off of the same page. Another way to extinguish the flames is to think about what comes before your eyes. 
Think about the things you watch on your computer screen, the things you read, the things maybe in your video library. If they fan the flames of unfaithfulness, get rid of them. Pornography is over an eight billion yearly business. Trash it, get rid of it, it's not worth it. You don't want to sign up for boatloads of pain and anguish that it will slowly and strategically cause you. Because Satan will use that to lie to you. Oh, that person can do that. That person can do that better. That person can do. Ladies, let me say a direct word to you. Dress tastefully. What you wear, make sure it's a tasteful outfit. I'm not saying to, to, to wear a bag over your body. I'm all for fashion. But some of the outfits that women wear, you're, you're, you're fanning the flames of unfaithfulness by doing it. Think about it. Think about it. Do you know any flames in your life? Do you feel their presence? Is it, is, is it getting a little bit scary? Let me say another thing, another suggestion uh, about, about touchy-feely people. Well, I, I just like to touch people. You know, I, I just got to touch. I just got to hug. I just got I, I, I to flirt a little bit. You know, I've I, I just got to talk some suggestive talk just to close the business deal. You're messing around with fire. You might be touchy-feely. You might say to yourself, well, well, truly they can't take it the wrong way. You're going to do touchy-feely one day with someone who will take it the wrong way. And those suggestive comments, those jokes, whatever, it just breaks down the barriers. It begins to stir those embers and to build those flames. It's a slow, methodical process. Let me give you another one. This is huge here. Embark on a lifelong journey to enrich your marriage. Why don't you do that today? Just, just make a commitment before God. God, I want to embark on a lifelong journey to enrich my marriage. It takes work to have a great marriage. You never arrive. You never say, I've figured it all out. It takes one little act after another little act after another little act, and then all those acts begin to build a great marriage. Dear Ed, I'm writing you this letter because I know in a couple of weeks you'll be giving a message on thou shalt not commit adultery. I'll be in the service today, but my spouse may no longer be with me. I'm sending this letter for a couple of reasons. Number one, I'm praying for a miracle that in something God says through you today, my marriage will be saved and my spouse will forgive me. Number two, if not, that this short letter may serve as a wake-up call for others considering these actions or who have been involved with someone. None of what has happened in our marriage has been a big all-at-once problem. Our problems were one little thing at a time. No fights, just little steps of moving further and further apart. A marriage is messed up by one little problem, one unresolved little conflict at a time, and a great marriage is built 
by one little act of love, one little act of service, one little act of caring at a time. That's why we have marriage retreats and marriage seminars and marriage weekends coming up here at the Fellowship Church for the next six months. About a year ago, I did a message, and I talked about marriage. And after the message, I had four or five people rush up to me and say, Ed, when are you going to preach the next one on marriage? We can't hear it enough. When? 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 One of the reasons we have a bookstore is to put resources and tools in your hands to solidify your marriage. I have some tape series available to have and to hold and State of the Union that you can pick up and listen that teaches you how to build a great marriage. We have books by John Trent, Gary Smalley, Bill Hybels. Check those books out. Read them. Delve deep into what it takes to build a great marriage and you'll be so glad that you did. It's a divinely ordained institution. One more and then we'll shut her down. This is my last one on my little mind map here. I have it memorized, and it's in, uh, what color is it? Green. This is going to sound weird when I give this last one to you. You're going to say, what, what, what's he talking about? I want to challenge you today to do the Moses thing and to write your very own Ten Commandments. That's right. I want you to write your very own Ten Commandments. No, I don't want you to jump aboard Lufthansa jet like we're going to in May and fly over there and then take a puddle jumper to the base of Mount Sinai. No, no, I'm not talking about that. I want you to write your Ten Commandments of marital commitment. I want you to write these. And once you write these commandments out, I want you to display them in a prominent place. What are ten things that it will take for you to do to really keep a great marriage. What are some things that you must live by? And I want to, again, from the bottom of my heart, share with you Ed's Ten Commandments of Marital Commitment. You don't have to imitate these, but these are the ones that I live by. But you can jot these down if you want to. Number one, I shall have no other human relationships before Lisa including the kids. Well, my kids are important to me. We have four, but Lisa is more important. Number two, second commandment for Ed. Remember your date night and keep it holy. <laughs> People often ask me about my marriage because I have a great marriage. I really, really do. God's blessed me with an incredible wife. I'm married way over my head. We have a wonderful connection together. How, they say, how? One of the things that's revolutionized our marriage is a date night. We try to have a date night at least twice a month. Some are saying, well, Ed, we just can't afford to. You can't afford not to! Take out a loan. Do whatever it takes. I don't care where you go. You can go to McDonald's or the mansion. It doesn't matter. Go! Well, our kids, you know, they are kind of weird with the sitter. And I don't know. <laughs> Many times when we walk out of the doors of our house on Thursday evening, two of the four kids are crying. And we say, oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> Cry some more. But Mommy and Daddy, oh, we're going out. We're going to date. We're going to court. So... 
Parents, in a Christian way, get over it. <laughs> Do the date night thing. It'll teach your children some autonomy and then let them go. Third commandment. Honor, Ed, your anniversary and special day so that you may live long in the land the Lord has given you. <laughs> Number four. I shall not take the covenant of marriage in vain by apathy. By apathy. When I'm apathetic, when I'm flippant, when I'm casual, when I have it on cruise control, I am not doing what I should do before God as a husband. What you use to get them is what you use to keep them. Think about that. What did I use to get them? Well, let me see here. Okay, I'm going to use that to keep them. There's truth in that. Commandment five. I shall not ride in a car or eat in a restaurant alone with a member of the opposite sex. Number six. I shall not travel alone. And this is recommended by our board here at the Fellowship Church. I have the opportunity to travel around the country at least once or twice a month and speak to pastors and other leaders. I never travel alone. Number seven, I shall not counsel a woman with the doors closed. All of our pastors here never talk to a woman with the doors closed. And let me say a quick word about counseling. Counseling is not my gift. I think I have gifts in other areas, but one of my weaknesses is counseling. We have some pastors that are much more gifted in counseling than I am. I mean, I'm, I'm the kind of counselor that says, Okay, you got a problem? Really? Well, you need to get right with God and pray and thank you very much. <laughs> I'm not that cold, but you, but you hear what I'm saying. That's, that's not my gift. You've got to be honest in your gift assessment. Where you're strong, you're strong. Where you're weak, you're weak. All of us have strengths. All of us have weaknesses. Number eight, I shall not share the details of our marriage with others. Do not share the intimate details with your best friend, with someone, especially a member of the opposite sex. Don't do that. Every time I share a story from our family or from my relationship with Lisa, I always get her permission. I, 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 one time, about three years ago, I said something that I did not get her permission for. And after the service, in her loving way, she walked up and she said, Honey, I, I would rather you not share that story again. I said, I understand, Lisa, I will not share that one again. And, and I, I should have got her permission, but, but I didn't. That's why I used the trusty mind map. See, I write every word out. If not, I can get into trouble. <laughs> Number nine, I shall not watch, read, or expose myself to sexually explicit shows, books, videos, etc. Number ten, I shall remember the implications of breaking the seventh. Here's what scares me to death. I cannot imagine telling Lisa that I've cheated on her. I've known her for 24 years. She's the only woman I've ever had sex with or ever planned to have sex with. I could not even entertain the thought of hurting her like that. Number three, I would never want to do anything to harm the Fellowship Church and the cause of Christ. I think this church is the greatest church I've ever seen. You people have inspired me and encouraged me and helped me in ways that you will never, 
ever know. I feel like the most blessed man in the world. Just the opportunity to pastor you guys and gals. It's unbelievable. And just to do that and to damage Christ and to hurt that which is most near and dear to him, the local church? No. But I think about that. Another thing I think about is, and this might wake you up, I fear the judgment of God. I have a fear of God. Yes, God's a loving God. Yes, he's a forgiving God. Yes, he's a counselor and a friend. He wants to change your life and help us along. I know all that. But I sincerely believe if I committed adultery, that I'd be living on borrowed time here on this earth. There's no telling what God would do to me, to my family. It scares me to death. Implications. And I've had to run through the implications before. And we all have to. And we better. If not, it's just a matter of time before we feel the hooks of the bait. Get right with God on this one. You know who you are. You know what you're dealing with. You know what you're thinking about. Get right with God. Because when you do, you'll have a strong vow, and your vow will never, ever break. If you've committed adultery, God can change your life and transform you beginning today. Don't live a lie anymore. Do what God wants you to do. Because His way always, always, listening and thanks to all who give so generously to this ministry. It's because of you that we can continue this show and equip people with the hope of heaven. You can click the link in the description to support the show or visit edyoung.com. There you can also be resourced with bonus content for free, including a daily devotional. We also encourage you to share the message today with those around you. Thank you again for listening. God bless.